welcome to the biota.org podcast feed. I'm Tom Barbele, and today's something a little different. We've moved from the interviews, the conference series, into the conversations, and now a new idea, biota.org chat. Here, Gerald de Jung and I discussing Gerald's new developments with Darwin at home with reference to my probably, what, 11-year now developments with Noble Ape and various other kind of abstract artificial life-related things that come up through the conversation. We are going to break these chats down into roughly half an hour each and probably spread them out over the next couple of months as Gerald continues to develop his new version of Darwin at home and issues will be discussed as they come up. I have one more lecture from the Biota 2 lecture series to put into the feed and a few more conversations to come. So hopefully you're enjoying these uh, somewhat eclectic collections of artificial life related stuff and if you have any comments or feedback tom at noblape.com. One thing I'd like to do, first of all, first off, is to uh, to describe some of the work I've been doing in the last little while, which is um, I haven't been able to do too much. It's been a little sporadic because I've been very uh, busy at work. So what I have now is I have the orb, and it's the environment, and there's um, gravity pulling uh, pulling towards the center of the orb, and the surface of the orb is op- uh, uh, is acting as the floor. The creation of a sphere and the geometric properties of the sphere based on the creation are really quite critical with this kind of stuff. You're using base polygons from three points being split evenly over the sphere, aren't you, in order to create the the actual sphere? Only in order to create the actual image of the sphere, because uh, the way it's being treated conceptually is actually a sphere. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the radius is used instead of the polygons. Okay. So topologically, what you're doing is the angular rotation at any given point, or what, what's the topological mapping for the actual creatures moving over the sphere? Yeah, see, I'm not, I'm not quite uh, resolved on that, actually, because I'm trying to think of what is absolutely necessary to make it sufficiently convincing. And I'd really like to keep things limited, because um, the, the success I've had with Darwin at Home up to now has been a result of really squeezing it down. You know, keeping it uh, in, a, in a very, uh, very restricted sort of um, focused evolution, and uh, I really can't imagine uh, evolution happening unless it's got a lot of time to do what it has to do. So uh, I kind of want to uh, create a situation that's just exactly as complicated as it has to be. Do you know what I mean? It's the idea of the. I, I'm reflecting currently on gene pool. But it's the idea of the petri dish in gene pool that enables the creatures to uh, mate and mutate in in a relatively confined area. What fascinates me about spheres in geometric terms is that they are almost the antithesis of what you're looking for in that circumstance, in the ability, particularly, I mean, you can make trivial spheres that are relatively small, but when people conceptually create spheres for these kind of environments, they want to create large spheres. I mean, they're actually looking for the, the largest space that they can possibly geometrically simulate and still be sustainable with regards to graphics and all the other kind of, you know, clunky things that come with these kind of simulations. So what I've found fascinating about spheres in artificial life simulation is that they are, in fact, the opposite of the Petri dish in some regard. I mean, the beauty of the Petri dish is that you're really confined on, on multiple sides. The sphere, you're not confined at all. Topologically, the entities can can move infinitely in any given direction on a sphere. Yeah, and they and they almost by definition have to encounter each other. 
well, if the sphere is of the right size. But what what is beautiful in the sphere, which we see in the real world, is that the size and the length of time before they encounter each other are directly proportional in some regard. So maybe if you want your Darwin at Home creatures to meet within, say, a lifetime, then you'll construct a sphere based on that size. But as you want to do different kinds of evolution or experiment in different directions, just gradually increase the size of the sphere and see what happens. Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, um, how to sort of make the bridge towards um, creatures that interact with each other. And, uh, and my idea of, of Noble Ape, which is quite limited right now, I haven't really done too much with it, is that uh, that's sort of your beginning point, you know, having having them sort of decide what to do and spending all your time thinking about how they would make that sort of decision. And and not, not so much on a sort of a physics representation of it all. Is that true? The, the ideas that came about in the formation of Noble Ape related to, in the, in the kind of cognitive component of it, in the uh, abstract ideas that I was seeing in epistemology and these kind of things in my philosophy studies at university, and the fact that I thought that these relatively abstract ideas could be mapped into computer simulations. So what you see in Noble Ape is really, on one side, my interest in biology and physics and these kind of things, meeting, on the other side, my interest in philosophy and psychology and simulating these things. Do, um, do your creatures have a sort of a dialogue with each other somehow when they encounter? There is, a, there is a communication interface which is currently very primitive. My aim is in two parts. Firstly, to empower uh, advanced users to write their own... Communi- well, to refine the communication interface to make the communication more meaningful... And ultimately, there is the other kind of artificial life developer's dream where the noble apes will invent their own language and move forward in that direction. Yeah, there, there's some academic studies in that direction uh, in, uh, I think it's uh, University of Brussels. It's Luck Steel, isn't it? Luck Steel? Luke. It's, it's actually Luke. Luke. Ah, oh, my apologies. Uh, luck, luck works for me in remembering it, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. So, yeah, so the communication interface is uh, relatively primitive currently. So is it, is it uh, in some way um, related to physical proximity? Currently, yes, but it's related to physical proximity. I wanted the communication interface to not just be with regards to verbal communication, I wanted it to have a component that allowed for, you know, body gestures, the ability for them to communicate in ways that required visual contact as well as being in kind of audio space proximity too. Sort of abstract senses, I guess. Exactly, exactly. So this is why the communication interface in Noble Ape is is the way it is currently, although I'm I'm fascinated to kind of move it in, in... possibly two or three different directions with regards to visual audio and potentially also scent and things like that that, that may also be simulated. So you're, so the code, you're sort of focusing on coding an individual? Yes. And this individual uh, has the uh, potential to interact with others? Yes. In the neighborhood, depending somewhat on proximity or not? Somewhat, yes, yes. Uh, how does that? How is that expressed? I mean, I can imagine, for example, uh, communications could be um, sort of broadcast out into the neighborhood, but uh, it would be lossy if the distance was 
uh, higher. Is that the way it's? Is that the way it's done? I haven't put in the modelling of uh, distance purely whether or not communication can take place. The way in which it operates, and this again, I'm reflecting on a code that I haven't looked at for uh, a month or more, is that all the apes, and you see this when you look at the windows as well, when they communicate, they effectively broadcast, and the other apes have the option. Uh, which would be passively written through ape script or actively done through the simulated ape to listen or not listen if they can hear it. So they have the option, if they know the ape is there, to either listen or not listen and then take the information from that. It's very rough currently. The communication implementation as it is currently has only been there for probably less than 12 months. But it was something that I added as an immediate need in order to uh, encode real intelligent agents through ApeScript. Sorry, what I'm trying to um, trying to get to with Darwin at home is that uh, like everything is related to geometrical proximity and things like that. You know, like uh, they would they would um, activate senses and these senses would gather information from a particular physical proximity and and so it you know it's really fascinating how different this is if i understand you correctly the other aspect of noble ape which you don't currently or i don't believe you currently have in darwin at home is the idea of line of sight and because the landscape undulates in noble ape the line of sight is relatively important for all these things you mean it actually actually changes uh uh, as far as the the, um, the individuals in Noble Ape are, are concerned, the, the landscape is constantly changing? It's not constantly changing in reality, but their movement over the landscape means that their uh, perception of the landscape is constantly changing. You need to think of it in terms of a, a DT versus a T in some regard. Okay, yeah, now I understand. So they have they have line-of-sight knowledge of the world? Certainly, yeah. You can see that, actually, because the selected ape will show all the apes that it can see in its line of sight in a slightly brighter red than the other apes. So as you, as you move or select or observe, you'll see some of the apes are slightly brighter than the other apes, and that's directly related to the line of sight check. It was a, a nice little graphical thing that I threw in there when I implemented it. Great for debugging purposes as well. But uh, to, to answer your question, so there is a communication component that has a line of sight currently. Obviously, with audio communication, if it was going to be encoded specifically, there would be some similar kind of distance check, which ultimately will be in the line of sight when it moves to a, a, a sphere-simulated environment. It's not in the line of sight code currently. I wanted to add things like imperfect vision and stuff like that as well, which is really moving into what I'm trying to do in the kind of next phase of Noble Ape. But anyway, so that does that answer your question with regards to communication? Yeah, that clears something up for me because um, I was trying to figure out how how you were handling um, you know the locality of of the creatures because there's the, in some respects you know there has to be uh, locality for each uh, for each individual or each group. The discussion with this uh, is both in the Ape Reality podcast but also in the documentation online through the Noble Ape manual that you can get to through the simulation page, there is what I call a speak-listen protocol, which is how they are actually communicating. So uh, when you want to communicate, you just put some data into speak, 
and then the apes have the ability to listen to specific apes as they choose through their movement. There is nothing yet... Well, that can be written both passively and actively. What I'm interested in doing is creating more of a passive listening as well and seeing... I mean, you don't want to make the apes paranoid. You don't want to make them too highly strung with regards to the environment. But there needs to be some kind of critical listening threshold that I'm still experimenting with in terms of, you know, that there must be panic sounds or other things. What I'm trying to do in the next phase of the Ape development is to return the predatorial cats and possibly other predators to the simulation environment very actively. And I think that's going to be the point where language is, well, language and communication, I always say that kind of caveat, will be really important in Noblape because you'll have a situation where the apes will have to stick together really in order to avoid these kind of predatorial cats or potentially predatorial birds or various other things. You know what's, uh, what's really interesting when I'm listening to you and comparing it to the, to the way I'm thinking about uh, what I'm doing, it's fascinating how it's different because... Um, what it comes down to is that you're you're coding in terms of the individuals. So you're you're coding in terms of the sort of like uh, you might say semi-sentient uh, individuals in the landscape. What I'm trying to code for, I'm trying to code at a different level. It's providing me with some challenges, but I think I have a, a couple of solutions that that might uh, might make it through. See, what I'm trying to code is like the individual uh, sort of muscle inside of a body. It's locomotion versus cognition. Wait, but not what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uh, incorporate cognition at the same level, which is which is going to be interesting if it's if it's possible at all. So it, it's a little far fetched, but but the idea is that, for example, an individual um, uh, interval in Darwin at home would choose at a certain point to become an eye for a second and to to take a peek into the world into the outside world, and if it saw something, then it might yell at the top of its lungs, effectively, to the other uh, cells to change their way of, of movement so that, so that some other thing starts happening. But none of them really understand what they're doing. That, that sort of stuff would have to evolve. It's, a, it's, you know, it's quite a big challenge. Yeah, I'm sure you appreciate stem cells and stem cell biology. And what fascinates me with the kind of new move of Darwin at home is that you're creating digital stem cells, basically, that can become anything based on on programming yeah and what i what i would like to experience for example just for just for one second here is to have uh sort of a larger and a smaller version of the same thing running on the same code but you know so the code was effectively able to handle uh creatures of different dimensions i i have a few questions back to you with regards to the landscapes because i think Aside from the psychology, philosophy, cognitive processes, whatever, and the biology, the landscapes was another thing that fascinated me with regards to the initial development, even prior to the development of Noble Ape. And it was something that was very powerful in, in my initial thinking about how to create a simulated environment. To date, the uh, Fluidium Darwin at Home environments have been very flat, well, or curved, but effectively flat. And do you think changing the environment in some regard in a similar time frame to creating these kind of super stem cell creatures that, that build themselves would actually give more positive feedback? Or are you interested in keeping the environment flat and just having a primitive gravity model initially? What, what's your thinking on that? Yeah, my thinking on that is, is, uh, is that uh, that might be a bridge too far. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to get this uh, this 
you know, coalition of cells uh, idea of an individual to get somewhere by survival of the fittest, which is, you know, a, a very uh, expensive trial and, off, trial, and, trial and error process. So I'm um, trying to figure out a way to give it a, a, um, a goal that it might be able to reach. And I don't think uh, navigating in a complicated environment is uh, within reach. It's not necessarily navigation. I think my own fascination with aspects of artificial life is what comes out as an emergent property. And what I think would be really interesting with the stuff that you're doing is rather than doubting the ability of emergence, and I don't want to kind of juxtaposition what you're saying with regards to the potential, but my, my feeling is that you should create as much chaos as possible and then see what comes out of the, the chaos, what evolves out of the chaos in some regard. So conceptually, whilst I appreciate your desire to create easily observable evolving systems in some regard, I think you will see amazing things come out if you move one step from that, move almost out of a comfort zone in some regard and see what comes from a, a slightly more chaotic environment. I think what I've seen playing with Darwin at home, both the current, both the intelligent design version and the, the previous version, if I've got the orders right, is the ability for people to come in and play with it and go away and then come back and play with it and go away. And I think this is very powerful in terms of the kind of computational time and also the kind of interest that you've had so far. But just putting in a few additional factors, even slip coefficients and changing the the landscape a little bit, maybe meniscus landscapes and these kind of things, could create a completely different class of, of movers. Yeah, but Tom, keep keep in mind here that I've got this um, this you know the fundamental uh, principle. Of this whole thing is is the at home part. You know, the idea is somehow I've got to figure out a way to to have uh, people at home running something on their PC, actually contributing to, uh, you know, the evolution process, because otherwise I don't have uh, access to the computer power. Your concern here is the frustration component, that you don't want people to come to something that they're going to naturally get frustrated with and go away from quickly. What I put to you is that even by reaching the simulation part of your site, you already have a degree of users that are willing to contribute some of their time to play and interact and create, and you should utilize that energy to give them an environment where true dominant-at-home creatures may die, they may fail to climb hills, they may uh, drown if you put fluid environments in, they may do all of these kind of things. I'll give you a noble ape example. Drowning the apes actually physically taking them out in the water and watching them kind of flail around and eventually die created a huge user group of kind of disgruntled university students when I first put out the Noble Ape simulation. And whilst I hadn't thought of it as an explicit feature, this was something that got a user base that I had never really thought about, and they tried to get their apes to swim better and these kind of things, and that became a, an additional game, an additional group of users which came to Noble Ape. My feeling is that the ability of a user base to have interest is typically come when they actually reach the site. I don't think you're going to dissuade users if their creature dies initially or if the creature just completely flails around. If you look at gene pool as an example, 
a number of those creatures fail dismally, but that doesn't stop people from playing with gene pool. In fact, it makes it even more interesting because you put one of the dumb creatures in that isn't doing anything, it's just kind of jiggling around, and mysteriously within, you know, 10 minutes, that's the dominant creature because all the fast movers have come, mated with it, swum off, had other creatures, and mysteriously you've just got a bunch of jiggling blobs. I mean, I think the, the play component is something that should be aim to be expanded in the kind of artificial life development and with regards to Darwin at home different kind of landscapes I do like the idea of the the kind of super stem cells I think that's very interesting and I think particularly the graphical interface on that is one of the exciting things whether you have an iconic interface or whether you have a 3D representation that you drag and drop I mean the way in which that is handled uh, will be interesting as well but I don't think you should feel that you need to constrain the environment in any way in order to to not frustrate users. I think users come and are excited and are interested and will do things probably beyond what one wants to initially assume with them. I don't know. How about this? Here's a question for you. When people um, experience something like uh, an artificial life program, is there um, a value in having them sort of emotionally connect with uh, some particular individual in the artificial life simulation? There are two schools of thought on this, and I ebb and flow between both of them. One is definitely yes, and this is the norm creature model where having a bonding experience with them is is the, the one of the most important things in terms of them being cute and what have you. I think most people that use or download artificial life simulations, however, are probably in a kind of more abstract realm with regards to the way in which they interact with the simulation. Now, intentionally, when I created Noble Ape, I made sure that the entities within the simulation were named after or similarly named to real-world creatures. Obviously, they had no kind of physical, you know, they weren't graphically modelled in that light, but I was very careful that everything that was simulated in Noble Ape had some biological connection in terms of reading biological texts and things like that with actual world creatures and the simulation dynamics I tried to adjust so they had properties that were similar to those creatures. But in terms of personal connection to an individual simulated entity, I don't know, I'm in two minds about that. It would need to be a really rich graphical environment in order for them to, and this is really what uh, Will Wright is doing with Spore, and even then the kind of playthrough is at most probably 24 hours worth of solid playtime, and then you want to construct a new one. So in that sense I think probably uh, even even the most basic kind of gameplay artificial life user is still not going to be you know married to their particular created entity for longer than probably 24 hours worth of play. So in that regard, I, I, w- I would probably move away from that, that thinking. Okay. I'm thinking also of, of uh, the notion of participation and, and how people can, you know, get, get somewhat the sense that they're involved. And uh, until now, I've been able to do that to some degree, but I'm not all that happy with it. I mean, people can play with the physics. They can learn to build bodies if they, if they want to take the time to do that. But that's quite rare that people uh, go that far. What I'm trying to get at, with uh, with what I'm working on now is is the idea of uh, sort of preventing presenting to the user a kind of a multiverse. If you can imagine that. Uh, what I'm thinking of is is sort of uh, grabbing a chunk of the sphere and having that transported to the client. And on the client, what you would do is you would basically have chosen one individual or one uh, one coalition of cells as the one that you're going to evolve. And uh, what you would then see is the environment of 
that one uh, coalition. And you would see that coalition sort of appear in 50 different forms, all different mutations of the original. And they would all be traveling in the same world. It was like they're in the multiverse. Certainly. And the partition would be, uh, sorry, the participation would be people choosing which, uh, which, uh, which universe. So, so you'd have people sort of aiding the evolution in a way by, by choosing which universe is, is the correct one. And then the genes... You know, the mutated genes of the one that they chose would be transported back to the server. Now, possible worlds and abstract movements through possible worlds are, I mean, although it's the kind of bread and butter for a lot of people that develop artificial life, for a general person, I think, is relatively abstract. I've not seen good examples in kind of popular culture of a decent explanation of possible worlds. So that is an interesting user interface in some regard, but I think probably what a user would be more interested in doing is to take the kind of virtual pet idea in some regard. If, if you are marrying them to an individual entity, give them the ability in some regard to, I don't know, maybe protect that entity or nurture that entity, but to give them, as you say, uh, possibly a matrix or 50 different possible examples having moved through a simulated set of events that go in a various set of directions through various possibilities is is relatively abstract in some regard it, it might not be it depends depends on what level you're thinking of i mean you might be thinking of this on a different level than i am i'm thinking of actual you know what happens in the next uh, 15 seconds on the world that's what i'm thinking of it, well okay so in in possible world theory 15 seconds, unless there are bullets flying and various other things, don't give a lot of visual change. In, in Darwin at Home, that would mean they will have taken a number of, uh, of bounds in, in particular directions. Okay, so uh, this resolves down to how you describe time more than anything, because time has a very intimate connection with regards to a user, and you need to have some way of explaining what goes on in simulated time versus what goes on in real-world time. My personal sense is that 15 seconds worth of simulated time would need to be, even in terms of embryos and things like that, the, the original cell division, all this kind of stuff, you're talking about longer than 15 seconds, really. So it's, I, I think 15 seconds is too small a time window to give people a, a list of possibilities. It's, it's not a list of possibilities. What they're seeing is they're seeing, uh, like imagine uh, if, if a person divided up into, 15, uh, into 50 different people and then sort of started doing different things depending on the, the, the mutated uh, behavior patterns of all these 50 different people. And eventually, you know, the room would be filled with this individual in all these different forms with, with you know, slight modifications in its behavior. It's sort of like, you know, uh, phantoms. Uh, each one of them is different. Each one of them is different, but they're, they're all uh, in the same space. And I think it might be very interesting to see that and to be, uh, as a participant, making your choice among those universes or among those different uh, individuals. And it might be that, you know, 15, 15 or 30 seconds of, of the future would be enough depending on what you saw them doing, depending on what exactly they can do in 15 seconds. I put to you that it would either need to be an extremely fast... I mean, we're talking about 15 seconds of real world mapped into simulated time, but I put to you that 15 seconds, unless it was an environment that was a war zone or an environment that uh, where the cell uh, reproduction was occurring very quickly. Or a very tiny environment. 
Uh, true, but that typically presupposes that you know that the cell reproduction or whatever evolution is going on in the on the cellular level is is going to be relatively quick as well. I'm think I'm thinking of ants. You know, ants how uh, they they live in the same time we do. But if you if you were to watch one, you would get very tired quickly because they they're doing so much in in a second. It's just impossible to uh, you know to follow. What they find is particularly with scent trails and other things with ants, even within fifteen seconds, the number of choices that an ant typically would have wouldn't necessarily be that great in terms of possibilities. Oh, it, it, it would, sorry, it would be if you were talking about the decisions that the legs were making. Okay. I don't know. I mean, if, 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 the, if the decisions are in some way centralized and based on sync, true, I mean, the, the ability to put a leg down or up or move it sideways or what was going to be occurring in, that, in those terms, well, I'm sure someone who is a specialist with regards to ant locomotion may, you know, may, may disagree that there, there is, in fact, more automation or more perception of automation than, than uh, we would allow for. Tom, just, just, just imagine zooming in. Imagine going up to this, uh, this ant colony and, and zooming in with your tiny little camera on an ant and watching it for 15 seconds how many different uh, activities it would be doing, how many different things it would be touching and, and manipulating around in, in that time. If you zoomed in close enough, you'd see all sorts of activity in 15 seconds. Okay, so whilst this is a, an abstract philosophical argument, how does this map onto a user's experience? That, that would be my only question with regards to this. Well, that's the difficult thing. I have to somehow uh, create a scenario that... that uh, is compelling enough, so I can try to imagine uh, the creature uh, running in a particular direction towards prey, for example. And if you saw, if you saw like fifty examples of your of your creature uh, emerging from the one and then uh, going in various directions, and you saw one of them had noticed the prey, and you chose that, then you will have chosen for the genes that tend to you know uh, take pictures in that direction, for example. You know, that's a, I'm sitting. I'm thinking at that kind of level. It's, it's a very different story. Yeah, I, I I think of predators in terms of a wide variety of things, and um, yeah, I, I can see in an abstract sense how this works. I think the user interface and the way the story is explained to the user is 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 going to be the interesting part with regards to the user interface. But certainly, on an abstract sense, I can see how picking uh, a wide variety of possible scenarios. But this also gives, philosophically, it's an interesting idea that it's in fact uh, that uh, almost the death is, is imminent and these kind of decisions in terms of how they affect the genetics are going to be really critical in terms of moving things forward. So you would need to have in some regard, firstly, very short life cycles, relatively primitive genetics. Oh, yes, I'd say, I'd say all of the above. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So with with those parameters in, in those settings, I, I think that, that sounds fine. But the user interaction is really all uh, in terms of successes of artificial life in terms of the successes that are moving into uh, games that are moving into literature and moving into uh, popular thinking the components of the interface and the way in which the simulation is constructed even prior to creating the simulation the story behind the simulation these kind of things are seem to be 
almost as critical, if not more critical, than what one is doing in the mechanics. So if we're thinking in abstract terms about how this is represented, we have these cells which form, uh, what was the term used? Was it communities or collectives? Coalitions. Coalitions, sorry. I was, I was going along the right, the right initial letter, at least. So they, do they mate and mutate on their own, or are they growing? Are they an energy-dependent thing? Can you, can you give some background to that? Well, the idea is to make them indeed energy-dependent. Uh, energy uh, everything they do is related to uh, consuming energy. They have different uh, abilities to communicate with the ones that they are physically connected with than they have to interact with uh, effectively other coalitions that are connected to each other as well. So, you know, they've, you've, got, uh, you've got an enhanced ability to communicate with your fellow uh, cells, and uh, some of them can take over the role of, uh, of muscle, and some of them can be, uh, become eyes. Your neighbors. Yeah, effectively your, your, your comrades, because uh, all of you are... Uh, working towards the success of 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 the coalition because it's the coalition that's able to uh, to uh, replicate thank you very much for listening to this inaugural biota.org chat if you have any feedback tom at noble if you uh, have any contributions with regards to the interviews or if you'd like to be in a conversation or even participate in the chat or if you have any questions more importantly to put back into the chat discussion tom at noble thank you very much for listening to this biota.org podcast look forward to you tuning into the next podcast